And thank you for that Trinitarian introduction from the booming voice of our Embassy Marine, Emery Persinger. Today, increment 150 of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Today we're going to consider, at the beginning at least, how this homily hangs together with a coherence and a completeness, which I call the integrity of the homily. And so we'll get right to it after prayer. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to gaze into this magnificent Holy Spirit-inspired homily, which has such application to our own time, enabling us to enhance our participation in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his life, even in this evil age, even in our mortal bodies. And we thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Beginning right again with Hebrews chapter 1, I want to look at a connection and a correspondence that illustrates the integrity of Hebrews as a homily between Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 in the exordium or introduction and Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 that we passed by or passed through more recently. Hebrews 1, 1, in many parts and in various ways long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets, in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son. That's Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The opening statement of the exordium of the Hebrews homily corresponds splendidly with Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, corresponding with the many parts and various ways that God spoke provisionally in the prophets, let's be brought to completion, not laying down again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith in God, of teaching about ablutions or ritual washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment of the age to come. These are all things that God spoke about provisionally, anticipatively, we could say, in the prophets. We're going on to a complete word of a priestly Christology. And we have to be carried along on to that completeness. What the writer urges his readers to leave behind is that which God spoke to the fathers provisionally and anticipatively in the prophets and to embrace what God has spoken with decisive finality and fullness to us and to all in these last days in a son. They were to leave the anticipatory word about the coming Messiah that was predicted in the prophets and prefigured in the Levitical laws of sacrifice and to be brought along to completion. They were not to lay again a foundation consisting of repentance from dead works. We'll take a look at that phrase again pretty soon. Christian life and Christian salvation is not repentance merely from dead works. But it's an entire turning or being turned away from curvature in toward oneself. It is a putting off entirely 
of the old self, the self-centered self with its works and its habits, its dead works we could say, and its habits, practices, attitudes, and disposition. The life that we now live is not a result of repentance from dead works, nor does it consist of that. The life that we now live is a result of instauration, as I call it, I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-T-I-O-N, which means the result of having been crucified with Christ. Romans 6.6, Galatians 2.20. I may not give all the verses during this particular homily today, but you'll find them in print because there's a lot of them. But being crucified with Christ, for example, is found in Romans 6.6, Galatians 2.20, Galatians 5.24. And we were raised to newness of life, as Romans 6.4 calls it, in which we serve in the newness of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 7.6, Romans 12.1, compared to Hebrews 9.14, Hebrews 12.28, etc. Now, the recipients, the 1st century and the 21st century recipients, so they were not, and we certainly are not, in need of laying down a foundation of human faith in God and of teachings of ritual ablutions and of symbolic laying out of hands that were practices connected to the mere shadowy sacrifices of the Levitical law. They and we, they were not, and we are certainly not, to keep anticipating the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment because they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. They were not, that is the recipients in the first century, and we in the 20th century, 21st century, are certainly not to keep anticipating an eschatological judgment in which one segment of humanity will be eternally damned and another segment, evidently, according to Augustine, a very small minority, will be finally saved and brought to heavenly glory. That's not what I'm anticipating. Instead, they and we are to realize that eternal judgment was the judgment of the cross, anticipated in the Old Testament times, as God spoke in the prophets provisionally, but realized in Christ and him crucified. So I'll say it again. We are to realize that eternal judgment was the judgment of the cross and the resurrection of all the dead is forever linked to the transconfigurative bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Another way to, to translate that is for eternal judgment is judgment in the age to come. Now we have to get the right perspective here. Judgment in the age to come is judgment that has already occurred. For the age to come in the perspective of the prophets and the fathers to whom the prophets spoke in many parts and in many ways of old is the age that has come with the Christ event. The judgment of the age to come, that which is often translated as eternal judgment, therefore from our perspective, is a judgment that has already come in Jesus Christ and him crucified. No wonder Paul said he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He determined to know that only when it comes to eternal judgment, when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, etc. 
So as all were eternally judged in Jesus on the cross, as he was made to be sin, and as he drew all condemnatory judgment to himself, so all were raised with him into new life. Consequently, in one sense, we were all raised together with him into a newness of life and service in the Spirit. But in another sense, we await his arrival from heaven when he will actually transconfigure our bodies to be made like his own body of glory. That's what we're waiting for. Philippians 3.20, for example. This bodily transconfigurative resurrection of all the dead is the resurrection that has not already taken place or the aspect of it that has not taken place contrary to the gangrenous teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus which 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18 points up. The initial recipients in the first century and we who are receiving Hebrews in the 21st century needed to abandon, and we need to abandon and not lay a foundation again of an antiquated conception of a double outcome of judgment. And we are to adopt, rather, the reality of a single outcome of justification and life and of glorification for all of humanity because... The condemnatory judgment of all of humanity was drawn to Jesus when he was lifted up on the cross. John 3:14, John 8:28, John 12:31 to 32, etc. and 34. God has indeed spoken therefore with decisive finality, and that's an important description, with decisive finality in his son in these last days. He has spoken with utter finality and fullness in Jesus Christ and him crucified. John 3.14 again, 3.16, 8.28, 12.31-32. So do you, here's the question that you must answer, do you perceive the correspondence of Hebrews 1.1-2 with Hebrews 6.1-2? And do you perceive its pertinence to us. Now we've seen that Hebrews, the Hebrews homily viewed from one perspective is a balance of exposition and exhortation with a slight tipping of the scales toward exhortation. From another perspective, however, the main purpose of the Hebrews homily and its integrity is the exposition of a priestly Christology of Christ as great high priest. This is the perspective that's gained from the theory that Paul wrote the dispatch note in Hebrews 13, 22 to 25. I'll read that again in my translation. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to bear with this word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly, that is, in this dispatch note, Paul's speaking. Know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes to me soon enough... I'll bring him with me when I see you. Salute all your leaders and all the saints. 
those who are from Italy salute you. And so this is reminiscent of the greetings that Paul passes along in Romans 16, as we've seen. Then he says, in particularly Pauline fashion, grace be with you all. Amen. Now, if this is a dispatch note from Paul, then the last verse that the PT wrote is 1321. We're going to see that in our next increment. If this is the case, then the homily itself is called a word of exhortation by the Apostle Paul himself. He sees Hebrews generally as a word of encouragement. He does not describe Hebrews as being brief, but his own dispatch note as being brief. Hebrews 1 1 to 13 25 is not a brief treatise. Hebrews 13 22 to 25 is a brief dispatch note. Hebrews itself is not brief, though it could have been made even more detailed and much longer. As the writer indicates in Hebrews 9.5, where regarding the furnishings of the earthly tabernacle, he says, now is not the time to speak about these things in detail. Again, in Hebrews 11.32, writing of the chronicles of faith heroes of the past, he says, time will fail me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, this doesn't mean that the homily itself is brief, but that his purpose was merely not to over-elaborate and thus to lose his major thrust. Again, what is brief is Paul's dispatch note. If Paul was authorizing the send-off of this homily to a group or groups of Christians within the geographical arc of his missionary work, which is described in Romans 15, 19, then he would want them to bear with the whole homily, to read the whole thing, to study the whole thing, evidently for its inestimable Christological value. It does exactly, Hebrews that is, does in all of its integrity, in its coherence, in its completion, it does exactly what Paul intended in all of his writings, to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. You should be familiar with that verse. Said another way, and let me speak in a distilled fashion. For Paul, the weight of value of this homily, tipped in favor of a priestly Christology, or an aspect of the word about Christ and about the cross that Paul himself had hinted at in his epistles, but had not thoroughly developed as the pastoral writer had in Hebrews. Paul undoubtedly would have wanted his readers to be urged to hold on to their eschatological hope as the initial readers were urgently encouraged to do so. If this epistle was written very near the end of Paul's life, which we assume very strongly that it was, he certainly would want the intended audience and readers to be incentivized to hold on to the eschatological hope of Jesus' glorious universal appearance, especially given the delay. Now, this is important because the delay is still hanging in the air, the delay of his coming, so-called, or the apparent delay of that anticipated event. Now, I'm going to destroy that whole idea of it being a delay because, in fact, you and I manifesting the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies 
is more to the glory of God than for the eternity to come manifesting the glory of God in immortal bodies because of the contrast, because we're manifesting the life of Jesus in the trenches of spiritual warfare and in the conflict of a class of ages. And so God prolonging this age is all to the benefit of his own glory and to the benevolent benefit of all of creation. So nothing could have been more heartening and have more encouraging value to those who were waiting for his second appearance, that includes us, Hebrews 9.28. Nothing could be more heartening in the meantime than to be reminded of what occurred in Christ's first appearance and to be thoroughly educated in it, Hebrews 9.26, when he put away the sin itself by the sacrifice of himself. And that, coupled with his ongoing appearance for them or for us in the present, in heaven, as a priestly intercessor on our behalf, Hebrews 9.24, Hebrews 7.16, and 7.25. What a shame it would be if he were to appear a second time without his people having been educated as to what he's been doing all during this delay, so-called. So until we see Jesus in the flesh with the eyes in our head at his second appearing, we see him crowned with glory and honor with the eyes of our heart right now. We see Jesus with the honor of our great archpriest, intercessor, and advocate, and crowned with the glory of a great king, our great king. When you consider the political leadership of this world today, you thank God for our great king. We anticipate his second appearance, to be sure. Don't let me be misunderstood. But we also participate with Christ even now in a strange and new life and livingness outside of ourselves and in Christ a livingness that results from being crucified to our old selves and to the world itself, in Galatians 6.14. The world that did not receive the incarnate logos, in John 1.10, and therefore the world who sins against reason. The world that crucified him outside the gate of the impermanent city. In a very real sense, the apocalyptic and disruptive event that we anticipate called the second coming, is already present in such a life and such a livingness beyond death. For we died and our life is hid with Christ in God is the spectacular declaration of Colossians 3.3. This does not remove our eschatological hope, however, because as the apostle went on, he said, and when Christ, he is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. We died dot, 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 and our life. The very phrasing of Colossians 3.3 and other Pauline sentences means that we are already living beyond death. Our life is already a life after death. We died and our life is hid with Christ in God. Our life is hid with Christ who died and who is in God in resurrection. Our life is Christ. Christ is our life, 
It does not say Christ will be our life. It says Christ is our life. We are not waiting for Christ to be our life. We are waiting for his appearance in glory and our glorification, which is the inevitable result of justification, to be sure. Moreover, we aren't only waiting for our glorification, but the glorification of Christ in all the earth, in all of humanity, in all of his creatures, in all of the universe, in all of history, as the past and the future are gathered in the present of his presence, the present of his apocalyptic presence. And when every eye sees the one whom we impaled to the wood of a tree of his own creation, and every eye sees him who was crucified with spikes of human manufacture from the minerals of God's own earth. Consequently, on the one hand, our hope is not just a deferred consolation. Got it out down here, he'll be back. That's not, our hope is not a deferred consolation. On the other hand, it is not fully realized either. For our hope is seen is no longer hope, says Romans 8.24. Hope is rather the stalwart holding center of our souls in a forward line of advancing troops, a line that consists of faith, hope, and love. Through the spirit of grace and by the faith that he evokes in us, ignites in us, kindles in us, we wait for the realization of the hope of righteousness, which is the completion of God's saving act of justification. Galatians 5.5 5 which is glorification in Romans 8.30. But while we wait, we know that he who knew no sin became sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Our justification means that we've been made the righteousness of God in solidarity with Jesus. We await glorification, not justification. Glorification is a magnificent inevitability arising from our justification, which is grounded in Jesus' death by crucifixion and in his resurrection and glorification. God, the judge of all, and here's one of the primary precepts I've come up with in Hebrews. God, the judge of all, Hebrews 12, 23, is God who justifies in Romans 8, 33. The God who justifies, the just God, who justified Jesus because of Jesus' own obedience, completed in the death of the cross. God is the God who justifies the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 4, 5 and 5, 6. This is how God has demonstrated his justice-surpassing love. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died, says Romans 5, 8. God is the God who justifies all human beings because Jesus Christ is the one who died and who was raised from the dead for the justification of all. His singular act of righteousness has universally justifying significance for as Romans 5.18 says, a verse that needs to be quoted 
every day somewhere. So then, as through one sin came, condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people. Justification of life came to all people means that God who justifies, justifies all people. Moreover, as Romans 8.30 says, as many as God justifies, he also glorifies. People can tell you all the stories they want about hell and how they saw hell after they died, dreaded air quotes. But they won't tell you that Jesus secured eternal redemption for all of humanity through experiencing hell in the unspeakable expulsion of God abandonment without God. Jesus experienced a death in God abandonment while God was still with him. That is what we call the mystery of the cross. It's a mystery that's too intelligible for the natural man and it's perceived as stupid to the perishing populace. Origin, O-R-I-G-E-N, the great and greatly misunderstood patristic theologian, considered two translations or interpretations of Hebrews 2.9. He considered this translation, that Jesus tasted death for all by the grace of God. That's in most English translations. And, however, he also considered that this was accurate, this translation, Jesus tasted death for all except God. He didn't say without God or apart from God, as we've considered before, but he tasted death for all except God. This is a variation of the interpretation that says, which I've adopted too, the translation that says Jesus tasted death for everyone without God or even far from God in agreement with Moltmann or apart from God. And that agrees with the whole of Psalm 22, incidentally, and we've seen that before. But it must be said that all of these are correct in terms of the truth that they convey and can be demonstrated as being central to the great divine redemptive intention. Origen, whose reputation was salvaged by Ilaria Ramelli in her fantastic 16 years in the making book called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, Origen, much maligned and condemned by certain people, Origen linked this verse, Hebrews 2.9, with 1 Corinthians 15.27, where Paul said that God the Father is the exception of all that are put under Jesus' feet. If God the Father who brought everything under Jesus' feet is the only exception to what is brought under the Son's feet, then all of creation in all of its times, and not just human beings, are to be submitted to Jesus. Moreover, as Origen and others like Gregory of Nyssa saw it, Submission is salvation. Submission is salvation. And so when every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, that submission is salvation. Since the submission is universal, the salvation is universal in the conclusion reached by Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory, uh, I think there were at least three Gregories that agreed with that. 
It spells universal solidarity with Jesus thanks to his death, resurrection, and enthronement. For this and other reasons, Origen appealed to Hebrews, which he believed, incidentally, was written by Paul, exclamation point. Origen appealed to Hebrews for his Christian doctrine of apocatastasis or universal salvation. That's intriguing in itself and something I hope we take a look at more and more as we continue in our own humble exegesis. Now to be carried to completion in Hebrews 6.1 is to be carried by Jesus to completion, meaning to a complete understanding the understanding that he gave us in order that we would understand the true God. 1 John 5.20 is essential in this. He gave us faith, and through faith we understand. Hebrews 11.3 We understand the Lord, the living and the true God, who exercises universal mercy, justifying justice, and saving righteousness in the earth, which is a translation of Jeremiah 9.23. The understanding that the Son of God gives us is the understanding that only comes about by participation in him. The Son of God in whom God has spoken definitively in these last days is the Son whom God has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of God's invisible reality. He is the Son who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. He has made purification for sins. He sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited Hebrews 1.4, compared with Hebrews 6.10, is more excellent than theirs. This son, now listen, because this is going to sweep you up in a tidal wave, a good one. This son, who carries all of history to its redemptive conclusion, which is the making new of all things in Revelation 21.5, is the same son, S-O-N, who carries us to the measure of the stature of human maturation, of which Jesus himself is the standard and exemplar, in Ephesians 4.13. Consequently, if we are being carried to a Christian completion, we are on the ride side. I said ride, R-I-D-E, side of history. We're on the ride side of that wave. We're being taken on the ride to the redemption of history with Jesus at the wheel, we could say. We are in the flow of history as it's being carried by the Son as an offering of a sweet savor to his Father and to him who is also our Father. We aren't standing against the tidal wave of true history, which is his story. We're riding on it to its glorious conclusion. Now, Paul would undoubtedly want for his readers of this homily the same thing that the pastoral author wanted. Paul could say, with this pastor, in Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, or make it just 6, 11 for now, 
We want each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence. That means the same diligence that you've shown in your past and present love for God's name by the service to the saints toward the full assurance of the hope until the end. That is when that hope is fully realized. In fact, Paul's own words in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 have a similar ring. There he commends the Thessalonian saints for, quote, their work of faith, their labor of love, and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, it isn't their work of faith, their labor of love, their perseverance of hope only, but their work of faith, labor of love, and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The life that we live through having been crucified with Jesus, which I call instauration, as an instantiation of salvation. Let me say that again. I know it's a mouthful. The life that we live through having been crucified with Jesus, instauration, as an instantiation of salvation, is a life lived outside of ourselves and in Christ. Extra nos, as the Latin would say, in Christo. Extra nos, outside ourselves, in Christo. It's away from what Luther called a curvature in ad se. It's away from a curvature in ourselves, into ourselves. So ours is not a repentance just from dead works. Ours is a turning out from inward, the curvature that was normally into ourselves toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So that surpasses a repentance from dead works. So the life that we live, once again, through having been crucified with Jesus as an instantiation of salvation is a life lived outside ourselves and in Christ. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we transcend ourselves, something we could never do on our own, for nothing transcends itself, and no one can transcend him or herself. That's the need of grace. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we do transcend ourselves and our merely natural capabilities, natural virtues, natural faith, merely human love and hope, we transcend, in other words, the hope that is merely wishful thinking or self-centered aspiration. Genuine hope, hope that is not destined to disappoint, Romans 5.5a, is greatly augmented and energized by the priestly Christology that's presented by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews. Hebrews is an impressive example of the Spirit leading us into all truth and glorifying Jesus. For in Jesus' own words about this spirit of truth, he will guide you into all the truth, John 16, 13, and he will glorify me, said Jesus, in 16, 14 of John. Again, Hebrews, in its integrity as a wonderful Holy Spirit-inspired homily, is an exceptional example of the Holy Spirit's glorification of Jesus. For through this homily, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, the glory of our great king and the honor of our great archpriest. We don't have to wait 
until the Messiah comes to put away sin. He did this at the climactic juncture of the ages. We don't have to wait for our lives and our livingness to be Christ. For to me, living is Christ, said the great apostle, and to die is gain, in Philippians 1.21. We've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Consequently, the life that we do live in these mortal bodies is a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, a faithfulness that culminated in his obedience in the days of his flesh to the death of the cross and continues, that faithfulness continues in his mystical body, the church. We don't have to wait for Christ to be our life. He is our life. God is not delaying the futurity of universal glorious appearance of his son. He is emphasizing the reality of Jesus and his livingness in people even now, whether people are conscious of it or not. And sometimes we're not conscious of it. When did I visit you in prison? When did I clothe you? When did I give you food? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, that's when you manifested my life, and when you honored me. And so I'll say it again. We don't have to wait for Christ to be our life. He is our life. And God is not delaying the futurity of a universal glorious appearance of his son. He is emphasizing the reality of Jesus and his livingness in people, even now, whether people are conscious of it or not. It is as important to God that the life of Jesus is manifested in the mortal bodies of people, mortal bodies of people, in this evil age, as it is that the life of Jesus will be manifested in their immortality. For the glorification and magnification of Jesus Christ in our mortal bodies is equal in value, if not surpassing, we have this treasure in earth and vessels, if not surpassing in value of his manifestation and magnification in the immortal bodies of the bodily transfigured, made immortal and incorruptible. For even then, the glory that is universally and endlessly revealed will be on display as a glory that came through death and that defeated death and corruptibility. Until now, we haven't paid enough attention to the notion of not laying a foundation that consists partly of repentance from dead works. Until today, we haven't. If anything, the Christian life is founded not on a repentance from dead works, but a repentance, as it might be called, which is an entire change of persons from the old self, now dead, to the new self now risen to newness of life in Christ. So what is important is not repentance from dead works, but a radical bending back of a curvature in I'd say, a curvature in to self, to a life characterized by looking unto Jesus, the beginner and finisher of faith's race, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And it won't do to try and make Christianity compatible with what people love to call enlightened self-interest. 
because so-called enlightened self-interest puts self at the center of all things, when in fact self is not the center of all things. Your coddling parents may say that you're the center of the universe, but you are not the center of the universe. Therefore, you grow up believing a lie. Enlightened self-interest is really benighted self-interest because enlightened self-interest puts oneself at the center of the universe when in fact and in reality, yourself isn't the center of the universe. So how could you be enlightened to think that? Lonergan would call it, as Pastor Brown would call it, scatosis, the blackout of the soul, not enlightenment. So it won't do to try and make Christianity compatible with enlightened self-interest because so-called enlightened self-interest puts self at the center of all things when it is not the center of all things, not the center of the universe. If we say that self is that center, when the cross is really the center, as we'll demonstrate down the road and have been demonstrating, if we say that self is that center, then we deceive ourselves. And if we deceive ourselves, we certainly can't be described as enlightened, can we? Enlightened self-interest is a contradiction of terms. The followers of the likes of Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon, who mock Christianity for its basis in self-sacrifice, may laugh now, but they will not laugh last. Consequently, they will not laugh best. The tenet of enlightened self-interest may be summed up as looking out for number one, which is held by some libertarians, as one's number one priority, is destined to melt away. Look out for number one is destined to melt away. And the glorification of Jesus Christ and all the earth in that burning instant of eternity when all humanity will repeat with stunned awe along with all the angels, holy, holy, holy. That's all for today. We'll continue some of these things. In fact, I think we'll take a closer look at Hebrews 6.9, a particularly important pivotal verse in our next increment. Thanks for your attentiveness.